0: Now, today, friends, I come to the 49th Psalm. Now, this Psalm actually concludes this first segment of Psalms that began with the Exodus section of the book of Psalms, Psalm 42 now through Psalm 49. As we said when we began, these all belong together. We have here a wonderful, as it were, vindication of the ways of God in connection with the wicked and with the righteous. And we have seen how he leads his people that are away from him, out of the land, and how he intends to bring them in, even keep them during the time of great trouble, just as he brought his own out of the land of Egypt when they were under a dictator down there. This has been a very wonderful section. Now, when we come to this psalm here, it again, may I say, is a very remarkable psalm. And it's a psalm that is designed to contrast the ways of God in connection with the wicked and the righteous. And it is a psalm that doesn't exactly philosophize about the uncertainty of riches and the shortness of life and all that sort of thing. But it does give to us a great message. It's not just a little sweet dissertation which bids us bear bravely our perils and our sufferings, telling us that virtue is its own reward and will triumph at the end. That's not the thought here at all. It shows us that not only the vanity of riches, but the end of those who boast themselves in riches. And this psalm may sound to you to be a little revolutionary, according to the thinking of today. But I think it's one that should be considered, especially in this hour. Now, let me read these first four verses, and I'll put them together. He says, "...hear ye this, all ye peoples. Give ear all ye inhabitants of the age, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth speaketh wisdom, and the meditation of my heart is understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I'll open my riddle upon the heart." Now, what he's going to do here, and actually in the next psalm also, He issues a call to his creatures to hear. We're going to see that again when we come to the first chapter of Isaiah. We've already had it back in the book of Deuteronomy. You will recall back there that when the Lord was ready to put these people in the land, why, he called heaven and earth to witness that he was putting them in the land and Not only putting them there in the land, but the conditions on which they went into the land. And he gave it to them then in the form of a song in Deuteronomy 32. Again, you have a song of Moses, and it says, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I'll speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. And God calls heaven and earth to witness the condition on which he's putting them in the land. Then you move down quite a few years later. In fact, the matter is, you're going to move down at least 800 years later Why God is ready to put them out of the land. And in Isaiah, he says, I want you to hear, heaven and earth, that the thing I'm doing is just and righteous. And he did that when he put them out of the land. Now, here is a call to hear. And it's called to hear something that I'm sure may be troubling a great many of us today, and we wonder about it in this day. And what we have here is the question that is asked in verse 5. And I would say that this section here begins with this question, and here it is, verse 5. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about. Now, the question is asked here, and you wonder who's asking the question. Is the writer of the psalm, the sons of Korah? Are they asking it? Or is it a question that is in the mouth of the self-confident rich? Or is it a question asked by the righteous who suffer unjustly? From the hands of the wicked and the ones that today are in want and look at the prosperity of the rich. I was a poor boy, and the only difference now is I'm a poor man, but I really was a poor boy. And I must confess, I've always looked at the rich with just a little bit of suspicion. I probably shouldn't do it, but I do. I always question their motives to begin with. And this is a psalm that just gets right down to the nitty-gritty, by the way. What about the rich today? What's going to happen to him? And why does God permit the rich to get by with so much? And they don't seem to have trouble like other men. And today, there is a clique in this country that It's made up of the rich, the influential. And at election time, they always come around and talk about us. They really tell us how wonderful we are and how intelligent we are and how lovely we are because they want us to vote for their candidate. My feeling is that this is a circle. Very few of my listeners know anything about that at all. There's always a question in the mind. Why does God permit them to get by with so much today? Why doesn't God do something about it? Well, let's move on down in this psalm, and let's read just a little. I want to read verse 6. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, The important thing to note is that no matter how rich the man is, he came by salvation. I go to the same counter he goes to, and I've got the same price that he's got to buy salvation, and that's nothing. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So I come up to the counter, and I don't have anything. And he comes up, and he's a rich man. But he came by, and therefore, he's on the same par that I am. So he's excluded from redemption just because he has riches. That is, he's deluded in thinking he can buy. That by doing something, giving something, that he'll be able to be saved. Now, we have something here that's put in a parenthesis in verse 8. That's interesting. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. They don't have enough money to buy their salvation. No man has enough to buy salvation. And verse 9, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. The rich are going to die just like anyone else. I think that on the basis of this psalm is probably the basis on which the Lord Jesus gave that parable about the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus, that died, you remember. What a contrast, and you have to get that kind of a perspective to understand it. He's not going to live forever, verse 9, that he should still live forever, not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the stupid person perish, and leave their wealth to others." I don't care who you are, how much you got, you're going to leave it someday. You know that you can take what you've got, you can put it in a safety deposit box, and put it in a vault deep in the earth, and you can say, this is mine, nobody can take it away from me. And you know you're right, nobody can take it away from you, but there is somebody that can take you away from it, your riches. And that's the Lord. One day, death will knock at your door. And you're going to be, at that time, just as poor as anyone. What is the old bromide that there's no pocket in a shroud? When one of the asters died years ago, why, there's some of the poorer relatives were waiting outside. And when the lawyer came out, why, they asked the question, they said, how much did he live? And the lawyer said he left it all. (laughs) He didn't take anything with him. That's the first thing that the psalmist sees here. My friend, you may be rich down here. You can't buy your salvation. You can't extend your life. And you find yourself going off and leaving that little bundle that you've made down here someday. And that's one reason, very frankly today, we encourage people to live what they've got for Christian works, to get out the Word of God. How important that is. Now, will you notice? Verse 11, "...their in one thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generation. They call their lands after their own names." Now, a great many people try to perpetuate their names. I think it's quite interesting that the name Rockefellers on buildings all over the world. And people say, my, wasn't he generous? Well, that is after he left that they put the buildings up. And the interesting thing is, in one sense, that's pretty cheap advertising, by the way. I've never been able to pay enough to get my name in marble on a building. In fact, I don't want it there. But the point is, My friend, that doesn't perpetuate your name. One of these days the buildings are coming down and we don't even remember the individual any longer. Now, will you notice what he says here in verse 12? Nevertheless, man being in honor, abideth not. He's like the beasts that perish. And one of these days, man that had such a high position here, why his body is put in the grave goes right back to the dirt like anyone else's. Now, he says this, "...their way is their folly, yet their posterity prove their sayings." Now, here's a very interesting expression. "...like sheep they're laid in Sheol." And actually, the literal is, "...death is their shepherd." And over in contrast to this, David said, The Lord is my shepherd. And he's life, by the way. He that hath the Son hath life. But the other shepherd, the false shepherd, is death. Death is their shepherd. Death shall feed on them. And that's interesting. A shepherd should feed the sheep. But here is a shepherd. He's eating his sheep. And the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in Sheol from their dwelling. A person may spend a fortune in a beauty parlor, may put on all kinds of lotions and powders and creams. But my friend, you take a look in the grave after a few years, and I must say it's not a pretty sight. I've seen several like that. It's not very attractive, by the way. Death really is not a beautiful thing by any means. Verse 15, "...but God will redeem my soul." "...from the power of Sheol, or the grave, for he shall receive me." Selah. Now it's time to think it over. God alone can redeem your soul. The important thing in this life is not whether you're rich or poor. Because in the final analysis, when you move out to eternity, the important thing is, are you redeemed? Are you regenerate? Are you a child of God through faith in Christ?" Now, listen to him, verse 16. "...be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased." Don't let that disturb you, that there are rich people around today, and they are getting by with murder, and they get by with adultery, they get by with everything. Sure they do. Uh, Let's not cover up. Let's not beat around the bush. And they get elected to office. I say to you today, friends, that the poor are not getting just deal in this world. And the reason that I've cast my lot with the Lord Jesus, well, several reasons. One is, it says he's going to judge the poor in righteousness. And I know I'm going to get a fair deal one of these days. This is a great psalm. Now, verse 17, "...for when he died, he shall carry nothing away, his glory shall not descend after him." Though while he lived, he blessed his soul. And men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in an honor and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. Now, this is a very interesting verse. We hear a great deal today that man has evolved from beasts or from the animal. The fact of the matter is, the Bible really teaches the opposite. God created man upright. God created him in his image. Man fell, and man can so live today apart from God, like an animal, and he's like an animal when he dies. Man is not evolving upward, he's evolving downward. He's not on the upward trail at all. Man is inclined to go down. And that is natural with anything in this life. Everything, to my judgment, contradicts evolution. Nothing goes upward by itself. It all gravitates downward. The law of gravitation in the physical world pulls everything to the bottom. And in the moral world, there is today a moral gravitation, which is immorality. It'll pull a man down. Now, we have in Psalm 50 here a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a musician. He was one of the three great song leaders in the temple. Heman, Asaph, and Ethan were the three. And this psalm is a great psalm. It's a judgment psalm. And here we see God coming in righteousness to judge his people. It's right before this marvelous Very wonderful 51st Psalm that we'll come to next time. Now listen to it, how it opens. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion the perfection of beauty God hath shined. Our God shall come, shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous Round about him. Now, this is a great psalm, a wonderful psalm, and this is the introduction to it. The mighty God is coming. What a glorious anticipation that should be for the child of God. Someday, friends, we shall see him. We shall see him. That's the prospect of the believer today. Now, there goes out again this call to hear beginning in verse 4. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. When God's ready to judge, he wants plenty of witnesses to be there to make sure that he's righteous in all that he does. He says, gather my saints together unto me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. That will be Israel, you see. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. The Lord Jesus is going to be the judge. The Father said he'd committed all judgment to the Son. Now, here in verse 7, "...hear, O my people, and I'll speak, O Israel. I'll testify against thee, I am God, even thy God." Now he says, "...I'll not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me." The important thing was... Had you been in Jerusalem at this time and later on when the temple was built, you would have raised a question with the Lord. You would have said, well, look, Lord, you're criticizing these people. They always come out on Sunday night. They come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night. They're always present. Why, they're just busy as termites around the temple here, and they're serving all the time. Well, sure they were. Just going to church, you know is not the important thing. I think it's important, but it hasn't anything to do really with a person's relationship with God. You better establish that relationship through Christ. And then you'll want to go to church. Now, will you notice verse 8, "...I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices, thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I'll take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy foals." For every beast of the forest is mine, and cattle upon a thousand hills. And God says, do you think you were really giving me something when you brought sacrifices to me? Why, God says, they all belong to me anyway. And if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I'll drop down now, because this is a picture of judgment. Verse 15, And call upon me in the day of trouble, I'll deliver thee. And what a marvelous insertion this is here. God asks His people to come to Him. But the wicked, God intends to judge them. And God says, I didn't let you get by with sin. Verse 21, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Now He says, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conduct aright will I show the salvation of God. We bring our thinking today to Psalm 51, and as we do, I'd like to call your attention to the fact that these introductory notes at the beginning of the Psalms are not inserted by someone later on. They are part of the original text, And this psalm has a superscription, as some of the others do, and it's self-explanatory and, I think, essential to the understanding of the psalm. Let me read it. "...to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba." Now, that I think is not only self-explanatory, but that's crystal clear. And it's a reference to the great blot on David's life. Now, it's not our intention today to go into the lurid details of David's sin. I think it's suffice to say he broke two of the commandments. The seventh commandment, thou shall not commit adultery. And he did with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then he broke the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. And although he did not personally kill Uriah, he had him put in the front of the battle so he would be. Now, this was a dastardly deed on the part of David. Now, after this disgraceful incident, David did nothing. He said nothing. And those who knew, and I'm sure there were those who did know, they followed suit. They kept quiet also. And actually, what David did was not unusual if it had been down in Egypt or over in Babylon or in Philistia or in Edom or Moab and later on in the kingdoms of the world. And even today, that could be true in Washington. And I'm told that it is true, that the conversation is who's going with who in Washington. But nevertheless, for David, it was different. He's God's man. God's man can't get by with it. But when you put him down with the others, he doesn't look near as bad as some would have you think, because in that day it was common sin, and today, of course, it is. It's just like someone has said that you put down a bunch of crooked sticks. I know that when I was a boy, I'd go out and cut wood. I used to have to cut down trees. My dad owned some property along by a little river in southern Oklahoma, and I'd cut down a tree, and then on Saturday I'd have to chop it up, and then I'd get an arm full and bring it in. Well, these limbs were crooked. But, you know, when you put a bunch of crooked limbs together, they straighten out each other. And you put David down with some of the others, why, he looks maybe not as black. But since he's God's man, what he did is black as ink. And it is as ugly as hell itself, the thing that he did. And... Today, I'm afraid that even in Christian circles, sometimes the only thing that happens is a few eyebrows are arched, but it's sin in God's sight. Now, it looks as if David got by with it, but David tells us he didn't get by with it. We've already had Psalm 32, which was not a penitential psalm as this one is, but it was a psalm of instruction in which David draws lessons from what happened to him, and he gives us his experience, and he says in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, "...when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my is turned into the drought of summer." Now, David kept quiet, and it looked like he got by with it, but he didn't. I tell you, his conscience was really working on him, and he was losing weight. He lost all joy. He wasn't the happy king he'd been before. So God sent Nathan to David, and it was an urgent matter. I think he asked for an audience, and it may have been a lull in the business of the court. Anyway, Nathan told him a little parable, a rich man and a poor man in a certain town. And it was understood this was a true story. He told about this poor man had a little ewe lamb, and the rich man had a whole flock of sheep. In fact, he had thousands of them. And this rich man, when the visitors came to him, he went over and got the poor man's little ewe lamb, and he killed it. Well, David had been a shepherd boy. He knew how you could get attached to a little lamb. And he could see this that was wrong in somebody else. So this red-headed king, he got angry. He had a short fuse, by the way. And he stood up. And I tell you, he said, I want to know who that man is. We're going to deal with him. And Nathan, I think, is the bravest man in the Bible. He pointed his finger, David, and he says, thou art the man. Now, there are three courses that are open to David. He can deny the charge, which a great many would do. We've had many men in public life that got caught, and then they denied it altogether, that they had committed adultery. And then David could have done something else in that day. He could merely have pointed his scepter at Nathan, and his guards would have led him out and executed him. He could have done that. And believe me, that would have shut many mouths. It would put a zipper on many. They wouldn't dare to talk except in the cloakrooms and back into the pool rooms in that day. The third course that was open to him, he could admit the charge. And so he followed the latter course, and he made a confession of his sin. Now, he didn't get by with it. Listen to him in verse 13 of Second Samuel 12. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given a great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that's born unto thee shall surely die. That happened, but scandal. And tragedy came to the house of David from that day to his dying day. And you feel like saying to the Lord, take the lash off his back, but God never did. David never asked God to. I asked him to, but David never did because he wanted to have fellowship with God. And his heart was like the psalm that says, as the heart panteth after the water brook, "...so panteth my soul after thee." Now, in this psalm, you have a great penitential psalm, and you have here the cry of David. And you have that in the first three verses, the cry of the conscience and conviction of sin in the life of David. And then you have, I might give you the outline here, in the second major division, a cry of confession of sin and the clemency or compassion of God. And then finally, and that, by the way, is in verses 4 to 8, and then you have in verse 9, I think to the end of the psalm, a cry for cleansing and communion with God. Now, let's look here at this first, the cry of conscience and a conviction of sin. Will you listen now to this man? "...have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions." Now, this is a great psalm, and it took a big man to make the confession that he did. Here's a time when a king said that he was wrong. Now, transgression is the word that he uses here, blot out my transgressions. And he also calls them here iniquity. He calls them sin. He calls it evil. And what's the difference? Transgression means stepping over the boundaries that God has made. David broke the Ten Commandments. That is, he broke two of them. And then iniquity means that which is altogether wrong in and of itself. And who says so? God says so. When God says a thing is iniquity, that's what it is. And then it's called sin. And sin means missing the mark. We're not coming up to God's standard. All have come short of the glory of God. Then it's evil. And that means that which is innately and actually, and factually, wrong. That is, I think, the difference in these words now. And you have here, I think, something that is important. I have attempted in these psalms to show their relationship to the nation Israel. And I believe that with all my heart. I think you miss a great deal of the meaning. And there is a dispensational aspect to this psalm. But you cannot cram into one dispensation or two the experience of a man who's come in under deep conviction of sin. Because this is something that'll come to a man anytime. Now, you and I cannot enter into the horror of the guilt of David. What he had done was repugnant. He hated it, he hated himself, he felt dirty. And his conscience was outraged. And you talk about a guilt complex. He had a guilt complex. And there was that anguish of his soul. Now, the conscience was pointing an accusing finger at him. And you have the cry of conscience here. The cry of conscience, what does it do? Actually, it's not the function of conscience to tell us what is right and wrong. A great many people say, let your conscience be your guide. You could get in trouble if you do that. But I'll say this after you've done wrong, the conscience will tell you that you're right and it'll also tell you that you're wrong. And that is actually I think the real purpose of it. I think that the New Testament would bear me out in this. Let me turn over to First Corinthians. I didn't intend to do this, the tenth chapter. And read the 25th and the 26th verses here. And will you listen to this? He says, "...whatsoever is sold in the shamels, that eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof." Now, there'd be a question before a man, when he was eating in another man's house, he'd be serving him something that maybe he didn't feel like he should eat. Now the question is, should he eat it? As far as eating it is concerned, it wouldn't make any difference. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. You want to eat rattlesnake meat? That's all right, but don't have me for dinner because I'm afraid I'd have to balk there. But for conscience sake, why, Paul says, go ahead and eat. It's not that it's telling you what's right and wrong, but it would bother you if you offended your host, and that's what I think that we should keep in mind here. Now you have this cry of confession and sin and clemency and the compassion of God. Listen here now. "...against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest." Now, David has been criticized for saying this, that sin was against Bathsheba, and it was against the family, his own family, against society, and it was against the nation. But it's not against God. And there have been others that have said David didn't write this because his sin was not a sin against God. Friend, all sin is against God and Actually, that's exactly what we have in David's sin. And I think probably, and there's something else I didn't intend to do. Well, let me go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and listen to verses 10 and 11 here. "...now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me." Now, that's what God is saying to him. "...and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife." How did he despise God? Well, God had given the Ten Commandments. And God says, "...thou shalt not commit adultery." And friend, I don't care who you are, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, when you break that commandment, you are despising God. That's what he says here, you despise God. And I don't care whether it's a preacher or not, you despise God. Now listen to him, "...thus saith the Lord, Behold, I'll raise up evil against thee out of thine own house." And I'll take thy wives before thine eyes, give them to thy neighbor. He shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And I don't think you get by with it myself. In fact, I know you don't get by with it. Now, sin is always against God. I don't care what sin it is, it's against him. Now, verse 5. He says, "...behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me." He said he had a sin nature. This is the root of sin. Every one of us has that sinful nature. Samuel Johnson, that great literary light of the 17th century, said, "...every man knows that of himself which he dares not tell his dearest friend." And Paul says, "...if a man be overtaken in a fault..." You that are spiritual now, the spiritual, restore such a one. Why? You might do the same thing because you've got the same kind of nature. And Paul could say, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And they tell me in the far north, when you begin to freeze to death, that you better keep moving because that you can get to the place that you become insensitive to the cold. And you can just go off to sleep and die. And there are a lot of folks sitting just like that in church pews today, my friend, that are frozen to death in sin. And they say, everything's all right. It's not all right, my friend. Now, let's move on. This is a tremendous psalm, is it not? Now, verse 6 and 7. Behold, our desirous truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. Thou shalt make me no wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, some say David was forgiven because he confessed. That's only part of the story. He did confess, but it isn't even one half of it. And we find here in verse 13, David, and this is back now in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Now, how does God put away sin? We have here, he forgives iniquity. That's what he said back, you will recall, in the book of Exodus 34, 6 and 7, forgiving iniquity and showing mercy, but by no means will he clear the guilty. So how does he do it? Well, he does it, my friend, because he gave his son to die for you. And that's the only way God can forgive sin. Now, the word hyssop is used three times in Scripture, in sacrifices, and for cleansing. Back in Exodus 12, verse 22, at the Passover, the hyssop was used to put the blood on the doorpost. And in Leviticus 14:6, to cleanse a leper. And in Numbers 19:6, the sacrifice of the red heifer. Now, hyssop is an interesting thing. I picked this up the other day, that hyssop is that on which penicillin grows. It's interesting, that which is cleansing. And it's used, though, to apply the blood of Christ. It's faith. That applies the blood of Christ, and it was used to apply the blood back in the Old Testament. It speaks of the cross. He could say on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the reason that he said that was so God could pardon my sin in Yoahs. He was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, "...in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins." Now, in the rest of this very wonderful psalm, we have here a cry for cleansing and communion. And how wonderful it is. Listen to him. Verse 9, "...hide thy face from my sins, blot out all mine iniquities, create in me a clean heart. I like that. God wants to create a clean heart. David is really asking for a heart transplant. And create means to create out of nothing. In other words, there's nothing in you that God can use. I've sometimes used this expression, give God your heart. Well, he wants to give you a new heart. (laughs) He doesn't want that old dirty, filthy thing you've got. He'll give you a new heart. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. That's important, but under good works. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David had grieved the Holy Spirit, and in that day the Spirit could be removed. But we're told today, grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption." And the child of God will never lose the Holy Spirit, but you can sure grieve him. And that's what David had done, but in that day, the Spirit of God could have been removed. Now he says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He didn't lose his salvation, he lost the joy of it. And uphold me with a willing spirit. He wanted back in the will of God. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. And I think many have come to God because of this marvelous, wonderful psalm. He said, "...deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness." he lost his joy, but he hadn't lost his salvation. And he wanted now to be able to praise God. "...O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise." That's verse 15. And he wanted to please God. Notice verse 19. "...then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon mine altar." Now, you know, it is possible that you could go to church without confession of sin. You could be a member for years but do you ever weep over your sins, Christian friend? Do you feel like you've sinned against God? Do you really feel that way? He'll cleanse you if you come to him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, friends, we come to another little segment of Psalms that belong together. They are a little cluster, beginning here with Psalm 52 and going through 55. And here you have a great prophetic picture that you'll get nowhere else of the coming Antichrist, the man of sin, as he will domineer over Israel and this world during the end of this age. He'll be a world dictator. And you will find our Lord referred to him. In the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Daniel speaks of him coming. Paul speaks of him coming. Now, all of these psalms are masculine psalms. We've seen that that means that they are psalms of instruction. And these psalms give us deep and spiritual truths concerning prophecy, concerning the future. Now, there are a great many wild things being said today in the field of prophecy. There's fanaticism in the great department of eschatology today, the doctrine of future things. And some things are being said that ought not to be said. And right now, because of the anxiety and uncertainty of this day, many people are turning to the Word of God. And, of course, prophetic conferences are springing up everywhere, being put on by churches that before never were interested in them. And certain men get interested in these things that never were before. And they go out on a limb. Now, here is a section that could be instructive to a great many, relative to this man of sin that's coming. And I'm going to hit some high points here today. Now, I want you to notice Psalm 52. I'll just lift out one or two things. Again, the introduction here, the superscription, is inspired, part of the record. It says to the chief musician, Maskell, that is, this is instruction, a psalm of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul and said unto him, David is come to the house of In other words, here is a man who betrayed David, and because of that, David actually was hurt by so many men who professed to be his friends who betrayed him. We'll see one in particular in this section. Now listen to him. This is a mark of the Antichrist. Daniel says he'll speak great swelling words, boasting himself. Well, listen here. First 1 of Psalm 52. Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, almighty man? Boasting of his sin, you see. When David sinned, he kept quiet. He didn't say anything. He's under conviction, deep conviction. But you know that man in the world sins. He loves it. He boasts about it. That'll mark the Antichrist. He'll brag about that. And that's the difference between a child of God And the child of the devil, the child of God, may sin just like the man in the world. He has the same kind of nature, that old nature. But my friend, the difference is this, that the man of God will not be boasting about it, hang his head in shame, hate himself. But the sinner, he's going to brag about it. And the man of sin will be that kind of a man. In fact, he will be the epitome of that. And all the sinners will love him because of it, you see. Now this man goes on, verse 2, "...thy tongue deviseth mischiefs, like a sharp razor, working deceitfully." And the end of verse 1 said, "...the goodness of God endureth continually." You see, God tolerates him for a short period of time. Even apparently God can't stand him very long, a period of seven years. Now we are told in verse 3, "...thou lovest evil more than good." and lying rather than to speak righteousness. You've heard it said of some people that they had rather tell a lie even when the truth would be easier to tell. And that'll certainly be true of the Antichrist. Listen to the thing that's said of him here, verse 4. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. Now, here are names for the Antichrist. O oh, mighty man in verse 1. He is a mighty man. And he's a deceitful tongue. Couldn't believe a word he says. And verse 5, God shall likewise destroy thee forever. And the word destroy here means God's going to beat him down. And that's what the coming of Christ will do. He'll be a world dictator. No one could stop him. No one but God, of course. And then we're told God is the one to beat him down. Now, verse 6, the righteous also shall see and fear... And shall laugh at him. When God brings him into judgment, beats him down, then this one that they once feared, they're gonna laugh at him. The biggest laughing stock the universe has ever seen will be Antichrist. Verse 7 Lo, this is the man who made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. He'll be a very rich man, of course. Verse 8, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. And let me say just another word about the fact he's a rich man. It's not so today that only a rich man can be elected to office in this country. I doubt whether Abraham Lincoln would make it today. They talk a great deal of politicians about Abraham Lincoln, but I don't think he'd be able to make it to the presidency in this day. And the Antichrist will be able to make it at the beginning because he's a rich man. Yet, in the midst of all that, the child of God will have an occasion. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. And I'll wait on my name, for it's good before thy saint. Now, Psalm 53 is the same as Psalm 14 as far as the translation is concerned. But there's something very interesting about this psalm here. It begins, "...the fool hath said in his heart," that's the insane man, "...there is no God, corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity, there is none that doeth good." Now, the Antichrist will be an atheist. And this psalm here is called a male and it's in sorrow and sickness. It corresponds to the mournful conditions of the last days when Antichrist is ruling. He is, of course, an atheist. Now, the thing that's different is back in Psalm 14, that seems to be identical, yet it's not. We find that Jehovah is used four times and Elohim three times. But here in the 53rd Psalm, Elohim is used seven times. And somebody says, well, what do you make of that? Well, Elohim is God's name as creator. And where is it today that the atheist is denying God? Where is it that it's breaking through? What's relative to creation. God's revelation, the word of God, it's denied. And no longer is the Bible considered trustworthy, infallible, inerrant revelation of God to us. And the first chapters of Genesis are being branded as folklore and myth. Today, even men that say that they are believers, evolution is adopted today as the explanation for the origin of all things. Why, many years ago, an outstanding educator in this country, is president of one of the largest universities, he says, we no longer take anything for granted, not even the existence of God. Now, this is the spirit of Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. You will remember John, in 1 John 2.22. What is the mark of the Antichrist? He denies the Father and his Son. And if you're going to come to God, you will have to come by faith. He that cometh to God must believe that he is His rewarder them that diligently seek him. And today, they're putting him and the Savior aside. You remember a few years ago, the Beatles said, we're more popular than Christ. Well, that's not true right now. It's very interesting how the Lord Jesus moved back into the spotlight, having been out so long. But this is a mark, you see, of Antichrist. And I'll not go into detail in this psalm again, as we did when we were at Psalm 14, Now, in verse 6, "...oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad." Now, friends, I do not see that God is through with the nation Israel, unless you're going to just absolutely deny the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture. "...oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion." When God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. I'd like to see you get around that, my friend. And yet today, there are men that say they're believers. I noticed today that a great company of the Amillennialists, I studied in an Amillennial seminary. I think I know this crowd pretty well. They've spiritualized the book of Revelation and to my judgment, to spiritualize is practically to deny the inspiration of Scripture. And here, you have to accept. That is, if you believe language, and I think that even a child could understand what's being said here that Zion means Zion, Jacob means Jacob, and Israel means Israel, and God means God. So we can't misunderstand it. Now, when we come to Psalm 54, it's wedged in here, and it's a marvelous little psalm, because in the midst of all of the trouble and the great tribulation, you hear the cry of faith on the part of the remnant of God's people, and I think that great company of Gentiles too. And I think the historical background here is something we need to note, and I think I should read it to the chief musician on Maginath. And that's a musical instrument. You will recall that it's one of the stringed instruments. And then he goes on to say it's masculine. Here's another psalm of instruction. It's a psalm of David. When the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Doth not David hide himself with us? Now, they absolutely betrayed David. And you have that record back in first Samuel twenty three nineteen. I'm not going to take time to turn to it. Maybe you'd like to. First Samuel twenty three nineteen. And they came and told Saul where David was. David heard about it, listened to his cry. Save me, O God, by thy name and judge me by thy strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to To the words of my mouth, we're told that in the time of the great tribulation, brother will betray brother. It'll be a time, again, of betrayal. An awful thing, but it's true. For strangers are risen up against me, and oppressors seek after my soul. They've not set God before them. It's a godless crowd that will betray him. Now, that brings me to the 55th Psalm here. We're hitting, as we've said, A high points. It's another mascal psalm, psalm of instruction, and it's the last in this series that we have put together of these four very outstanding psalms. Now, will you notice, it is, I think, the darkest days of the darkest period in the history of the world. That is, it is the tribulation at its darkest moment, and the a man of sin, the personal Antichrist, is fully portrayed, I think, here in this psalm in a very remarkable way. And this is something, I'm sure, that many that are even students of prophecy have never considered before. Now, there is a background of this psalm. It says to the chief musician on Neginath, Maskil, A Psalm of David. Now, what is the background of it, though? We're not told. I think this is one he wanted us to seek out. You will recall that when David's own son, Absalom, led a rebellion against him, David left Jerusalem. He found out that a great many had gone over to Absalom, and he did not want Jerusalem and Mount Zion, his beloved city, destroyed. So he went back out to the caves of the earth to be there. Now, here is one that has betrayed David, as we shall see in this psalm, and it goes back to the experience that he had. You will recall that when he went out, he went out weeping, and word was brought to him that Ahithophel had gone over to the side of Absalom, and Ahithophel had just been actually one of his cabinet, been very close to David, and he now had gone over to the other side and betrayed him. I'm turning back now to pick up two verses. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 30 and 31. Listen to this. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet, and wept as he went up, and had his head covered. And he went barefoot, and all the people that was with him covered every man his head, and they went up weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying... Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom, and David said, "O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness." And I think, by the way, God did that. But I would say this is one of the most remarkable psalms that we have. Now I'm going to hit high points here, but I want to note the last part of it in particular. He says, as he opens this psalm, "...give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Attend unto me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make a noise." David, I tell you, he's like, you know, the squeaking wheel gets the grease. David says, "...I'm making a noise before you, Lord. I'm crying out to you." because." I'm in a desperate situation. I've been betrayed, been betrayed by a friend. And he says, verse 3, because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they cast iniquity upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is very pained within me, and the terrors of death are fallen upon me. David did not know but what he'd be slain. You see, at that time and especially when those that were around him had deserted him. Now, verse 6, And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then would I fly away and be at rest. You remember at first he was advised to fly away to his mountain. That is, go back out. David at first would not do it. But now, when it seems all is lost, and even a Ahithophel, One of his trusted advisors, one who was close to him, has now betrayed him. It reminds you of something, I'm sure, of Judas Iscariot who betrayed Christ. And then this nation will be betrayed by Antichrist. And many of us have had this happen to us. I've been a pastor for years. And every now and then, I must say, I've had some wonderful men on my staff, but I've had one or two that turned out to be Judas Iscariot, and they turned out to be a Ahithophel. They betrayed you. And it hurts, of course, to have someone that you had confidence in. But it was thou a man mine equal, my God, and my familiar friend. Now, this is David speaking of him. Antichrist will betray this nation. They will pretend to have been, you see, the friend. He made a covenant with him. Listen to him. We took sweet counsel together and walked under the house of God in company. Oh, these fellows will pray with you, and they'll pray for you when you're there. Or when your back is turned, they'll put a knife in your back. Now, friends, there are folk like that today. They're around us. If Antichrist appeared tomorrow, he'd have a following before the sun went down. Now, listen to David. And this is imprecatory, I grant you, but you listen to him. Let death seize upon them, and let them go down alive into Sheol, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. We have a frightful expression today, and I think it's terrible. You hear it in the world. Sometimes you hear somebody say to another, go to hell. That's an awful thing to say. And may I say to you, David almost said that relative to Ahithophel. Our Lord prayed for those that despitefully used him. And someday God will deal with these as he's dealt with Antichrist. Now, listen to him here. Listen to this man, David, now, verse 16. As for me, I'll call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. What a picture that you have here. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, he shall hear my voice. I'll tell you one thing your enemy will do for you, friends. He'll cause you to pray more than probably you've ever prayed before. And that may be a very good thing after all. Now, listen to David here. And this is a picture now of Antichrist, verse 21. Oh, is he a liar? And the devil is called a liar from the beginning. Christ is right out of the pit of hell, friends. Listen, the words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn so in. Oh, how terrible, how awful, pretending to be a friend of David and at the same time plotting against him. That's Antichrist. Verse 22, "...Cast thy burden upon the Lord, he shall sustain thee, he shall never suffer the righteous to be moved." Now, may I say this to you today, Christian friend, and I can speak after some experience. Turn your enemies over to God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Turn them over to God. Say, Lord, deal with them. And you know, over a period now, many years, I've been a pastor 40 years I found out the Lord does a better job of dealing with them than I would because he knows how to do it. I don't. Turn your enemies over to God, those that have betrayed you. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. That's what they'll be doing in the Great Tribulation. Only place to turn. And many of us find that a good place to go today. Verse 23, "...but thou, O God, shall bring them down into the pit of destruction." Bloody and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I'll trust in thee. What about you today and what about me today in this world? Are we going to start crying and hating people and start criticizing them? No, my friend, may I say to you, let's start trusting the Lord today. That's the way out.